good, that is a good prayer for us this morning, uh, and that's been my prayer this week, that the Holy Spirit would open his word to us, and uh, I have a unique privilege to uh, prepare and pray and then come and share what God's laid on my heart, and as, as we believe that God is moving in our midst, then we can believe that God moves in this way, that his word, not because of what I've studied or what I'm going to say, but his word is powerful and active. And so we come again, uh, we're closing in on our uh, seven shared member values. We're getting to the end of this series, so we're in the last two, maturity and unity. And so for the month of September, we're going to focus on maturity. And there's a a number of ways we could define maturity, right? Look look at the person next to you and just ask them, do you feel mature this morning? (laughs) And 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 maybe they respond this way. Maybe maybe they respond this way. My maturity, my level of maturity changes depending on who I'm with. Is that true for you? You get around some of those people and you go, yeah, maturity's out the door because uh, we like to have fun. Uh, Maturity is uh, sometimes knowing when and where to be immature, right? And so maybe you're around those people that bring out immaturity in you and, uh, you know, you just want to have fun. And so maturity is knowing, well, is this the right time and the right place to be immature? And, you know, we can see it in the children that we just prayed for, you know. Sometimes they don't know that this is not the right time or right place to be immature, okay. This is, this is a place where we come to worship, and yet we go, okay, but we know that they don't know that yet. They're still growing up in that. They're still coming to understand that. And so maturity, sometimes we could say, is knowing when and where to be immature, or, or maybe, you know, you've come to that place where you go, hey, um, maturity really is when you get to that place where you go, my parents weren't always wrong, right? Where you can actually admit that to yourself. So, so we have some of you in that stage of life where you're kind of entering into adulthood on your own and you're making life your own. And there's been this light bulb moment where you look back over your life and you go, wow, my parents weren't dumb, They actually had some insight into life, and some of their guidelines were actually good and right and healthy, and that's a level of maturity that you've come to. But you know, there are those moments where maturity may go out the window for all of us. You know, we're we're all mature until somebody brings out bubble wrap, right? And, and, And then it's like... How, how much of this stuff can we stomp on? And can I, can I get every single bubble out? And so there's something in each one of us that just craves fun. And, and I just want to say maturity is not the antithesis of fun. We can be mature and have fun. So, uh, you know, I've heard one person say, you know, maturity is the word that boring people use to squelch fun. I want us to have fun and to be mature. 
But to grow in maturity, we actually have to listen. So maybe you could relate to this little cartoon as a counselor says. Basically, it comes down to your lack of maturity and your refusal to, de- to deal with your problems. And sometimes we find ourselves going blah, 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 blah. And so my hope is that this morning, that's not the condition of your heart. My hope is that as we come to the word this morning and we look at this concept of spiritual maturity that will actually open our ears. So wherever you think you're at, let me encourage you, we can become more mature. Wherever you think you're at, we can continue to grow in maturity. So I have a uh, working definition for us this morning. Uh, Spiritual maturity is a spirit-empowered eagerness and ability to do life with God and with others in a way that glorifies, edifies, and testifies. Spiritual maturity is a spirit-empowered eagerness. Okay, just like coming to the Word this morning, we've prayed that God would open up His Word to us by His Spirit. The only way that we become spiritually mature is that the Spirit is at work within us. And the Spirit works within us to produce this eagerness. When was the last time you felt eager for something? Maybe it was your birthday, or maybe it was Christmas, or maybe you're starting to feel eager for fall, and you know, pumpkin everything, and apple this, and apple that, and you're like, yes, here it comes! I get eager about fall. The temperature has started to change, and I go, yes, fall is here. Fall is my favorite. Sorry, I know that it leads us to winter, and winter is not my favorite, but we got to deal with it to get back around to spring and summer and fall again. So when's the last time you felt eager about something? A gift that you were given, the excitement that starts to percolate in you. Does that define your spiritual life? Spiritual maturity is a spirit-empowered eagerness and ability. I struggled with this word because I go, well, that ability comes from the spirit. But what we see in spiritually mature people is that they are able to actually do this. We see that. That's how we can identify a spiritually mature person. That we go, oh, look at their life. They've actually figured out how to live life, how to do life with God. In those quiet spaces where you're alone. Because this is a very individualistic thing. To be spiritual mature when no one's looking, when nobody cares, when nobody's there to hold you accountable, when it's just you and God, you're still living life in a way that brings about glory and edification and testimony. And it is this thing that we live in together, that we do this with others, because life is not lived in a bubble. Life is community. It's very hard to do life on your own. We were not built that way. It was not God's intent for us. We were built, we were made, we were created to do life together. 
And spiritual maturity is an eagerness and ability to do life with others, with one another in a way that glorifies and edifies and testifies. Word glorify, um, maybe it goes without saying, but um, I, I didn't want the definition to get too wordy. I want you to be able to remember this. But when it comes to glorification, there's two people in your life that can get glory, but not at the same time. You or God. And so when we say that this is an ability, an eagerness, an ability to do life with God and others in a way that glorifies, I'm talking about glorifying God, not yourself. Now, here's the safeguard. If you're glorifying yourself, it's really hard to edify other people. Edify means to build up, to build up others, to build up specifically other believers, because as believers, we're called to live in such a way that we're actually spurring one another on, that we're building one another up, that we're actually seeing more maturity in one another because we're doing life together. And then to testify, to actually bear witness to the goodness, to the greatness of God and his work in our lives by how we live so that others around us might go, wow, I want to know what that person knows. So it is this spirit-empowered eagerness and ability to do life with God and others in a way that glorifies, edifies, and testifies. Now, now you go, okay, um, maybe you agree with the definition, maybe you don't. You go, those are nice words, Andrew, but I want you to define like spiritual maturity. Like, what is it? And I go, well, I just did. But it flows out of something else. And this is where we tend to jump into a, a dichotomy of either being or doing. So, so either sitting in the truth of God and allowing God to define who we are or doing the things that we're called to do. And there's always a little bit of tension between those two, but I'll just say we cannot do unless we've been. Doing flows out of being all the time. If we are doing without being, if we are trying to serve God without being with God, doing becomes very empty and very hard and very exhausting very, very quickly. So spiritual maturity flows out of an understanding and appreciation of our identity, gifting, and calling, and is assessed by fruitfulness. So, so if you walk away with anything to go, all right, how, how do I become more eager and able to live with God and others in a way that glorifies, edifies, and testifies? I want you to hear, you need to look at your identity, your gifting, and your calling. And, and in line with those, you just need to go, okay, what kind of fruit is that producing in my life? So I, I just want to carefully say, spiritual maturity is not synonymous with biblical knowledge. Okay, you can know this book backwards and forwards, but if it has not truly informed your identity, your gifting, and your calling, then that knowledge only serves to puff up. If it hasn't focused your heart on how you're living out of who God says you are, what God has done in you by his spirit, and what he's called you to do in the world, then biblical knowledge falls short of spiritual maturity. Now, don't hear me wrong. Biblical knowledge is an important aspect of spiritual maturity. We have to be informed by this book. 
But biblical knowledge does not necessarily equal spiritual maturity. Nor is spiritual maturity synonymous with church attendance or membership. Being here every Sunday, belonging to this church, does not guarantee spiritual maturity. Now, of course, it helps to gather together with us together, because that's how we do life together, right? And so we come into this place every week and hear from the Word of God together, and we look at each other's faces, and we go, okay, how do I live life with God and others in a way that brings glory and edification and testimony? But church attendance and membership do not guarantee spiritual maturity. Spiritual discipline does not guarantee spiritual maturity. You can read and pray every day, but if it is only a rote behavior, if it never really gets into your heart, then it doesn't serve to produce spiritual maturity in your life. Finally, ministry activity is not spiritual maturity. To serve in the church over and over again does not guarantee and does not automatically bring about the outcome of spiritual maturity. So again, spiritual maturity is this spirit-empowered eagerness and ability. Eagerness and ability. To do life with God and others in a way that glorifies, edifies, and testifies. And it flows out of an understanding and appreciation of our identity, gifting, and calling, and is assessed by faithfulness. So that's our outline for this month. This morning we're going to look at identity. Next week we're going to look at gifting. The next week we're going to look at calling. And on our Family Fellowship Sunday, we're going to pray about fruitfulness together. And so, um, there's many places we could go this morning to think about our identity in Christ. But one of my favorite places is 1 Peter 2, 9, and 10. So if you have your Bibles, you can open them to 1 Peter 2, 9, and 10. And and I'll just let you know that this, to me, is Peter's summary statement of all that he has said leading up to this. So if you have 1 Peter 2, 9, and 10 open, you might have to actually flip back a page to see what he said in chapter 1. Now, I'll have uh, most of these texts up on the screen for us this morning, but uh, we'll, we'll root ourselves in, in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10, and then we'll see why Peter is summing up what he has said in chapter 1 with these terms. So here's 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. But you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Oh, those are good words that I just pray can wash over you this morning. This is who we are in Christ. In Christ, you 
are. I, I want you to notice as we continue to unpack this passage how each of these descriptions of who we are in Christ is put in a plural you. So if we were down south and you know, had the southern version of the scriptures, it would say y'all. Okay, so, so, so Peter would be like, but y'all are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation of people for his own possession. Now, the interesting thing about the plural you in Scripture is there's always an individualistic aspect of it and a corporate aspect of it. So whenever the plural you is used, you can go, there's something here for me as an individual, and there's something here for us as a people, as a gathering. And so this morning, as we unpack these different terms, these different phrases that Peter uses, I I just want you to hear there's something here for you as an individual. I I, I don't want you to get stuck in the plurality of these things to go, well, yes, that's them, that's us, that's someone other than me. No, it is you and it is y'all, us. Together, something here for you, something here for all of us. Now, I I just also want to say that maturity, beginning with our identity, is this ongoing process. Okay, so we go, okay, I want to arrive at maturity. Here's the thing. The, The Greek word that is most often translated maturity, teleos, is also more often translated perfect. So there is this idea that maturity is perfection. And I'm just going to tell you, on this side of heaven, we don't get there. Okay, And and so if you're looking at maturity as this destination that maybe, possibly, if I just did everything right in my life, I would eventually end up at spiritual maturity. No, 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 no. We will. Christ will come again and he will perfect us. And all of a sudden we will know spiritual maturity like never before. But this is a process. This is an ongoing work. And so Peter in uh, the chapter 2 verse 2, he starts this idea this way. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. That phrase, long for, that's eagerness, okay? Have have you ever seen a, a, a baby who really wants a bottle? Okay, they may be small, but get out of the way. Okay, because there is an eagerness to get to what is in that bottle, okay? It, does that define your life? Like newborn infants... Long, be eager for the pure spiritual milk, the the stuff that actually gives us life, the things in this book. That by it you may grow up, that that you may mature, that, that you may increase in spiritual maturity. This is an ongoing process. And... Something to eagerly pursue in your life. That you may grow up into salvation if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Spiritual maturity has to begin with a little taste. 
that God is good. Has there ever been anything like out on your counter like this morning? My mom made banana bread last night, and her banana bread is the best, okay? I don't care if you think you have good banana bread, uh uh-uh. Don't bring it to my house because we've tasted good banana bread, and we had some. And so last night, there's three loaves of banana bread sitting out cooling, and the whole house smells like chocolate and bananas, and anybody who walks in is like, oh, that smells good. And so my mom, she cuts off a piece and cuts it in half and gives me this little, little half piece of banana bread. I'm like, that's not going to do because I've tasted this before. And it is good. And so I want more. And so by the end of the evening, our, our little family, which is a little bit smaller now because uh, a couple of us are gone right now, but um, our little family had cleared out one of those loaves of banana bread. Because it's good, and all of a sudden, you eagerly want more. And unfortunately, I'm able to pack it away. Have you tasted that God is good? Have you gotten a little morsel of the goodness of God in your life? Man, I have. I've tasted His grace, I've tasted His mercy. I've tasted his provision. I've tasted his truth and its freedom. I've tasted his joy. And man, that makes my heart go, I want more. And I pray that this morning that you've had an experience like that. And if you haven't, I just pray that you would listen this morning. If you haven't, I pray that there's somebody in this room that you know that you might ask, hey, could, could you help me understand the goodness of God? Or or even this, this morning, if you feel like you haven't tasted the goodness of God, would you just ask? God, would you show me your goodness? And based on the testimony of Scripture, if you're sincere in that request, God is going to be faithful to give you a taste. And when we taste and we see that God is good, man, it stirs in our hearts to want more. And all of a sudden, we're on this journey. Desire this. God has shown us in his goodness a redefinition of who we are. God in his goodness has said, you are not who I desire you to be. And that's because of sin. We read it this morning. All of us have sinned. We've fallen short of the glory of God. We're missing God's best for our life. And God in his goodness says, I want to redefine your identity. So through Peter, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, in Christ you are a chosen race. Oh, praise the Lord. We're chosen. We're picked out. This, this rings in my ears of the people of Israel. Why did God pick them? I have no idea. But he did. He chose them. Out of an abundance of nations, out of an abundance of people, what was so special about Abraham? I have no idea. 
We're never told other than he was willing to say, okay, I'll follow you, God. But he was chosen. This morning, if you're in Christ, you are chosen. You've been picked. You've been selected. And I don't know why. Because I know myself and I go, I don't deserve that. I don't deserve God's kindness. I don't deserve God's goodness. But for whatever reason, in his infinite wisdom, in his infinite love, he chose me and he chose you. This word race, it's uh, been in the news lately. There's all kinds of definitions out there. Race is typically defined as physical characteristics that define a person as being a member of a specific group. This word race in the New Testament, it means nation or family. Differences that come together to define who we are. And I think Peter's saying, hey, you know what? As chosen people, as a chosen race, there are some characteristics that should define our lives. There are some spiritual characteristics of Christ that should be evident in us. But I think it goes beyond that. I I think Peter knew that race divides. And so he goes, you know what? I I don't care where you're from or the physical characteristics that define you. Now, he's not dismissing race. He's just saying, we're a different race when we're together. Whether you're red, yellow, black, and white, we are together as a chosen race. And why do I say that? Well, because in chapter 1, he opens his book this way. Here's how he starts his letter. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect or chosen. Okay, same word. Exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and the sprinkling of his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. That list of people groups right there, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, those were different people. And yet Peter goes, I need you to understand, as rich as your heritage may be, as unique and special and as important as your physical characteristics might define you and how that puts you into different groups, I need you to understand that you're a chosen race before God. And that's irregardless of the race you might claim or the race that others might impose on you. You are God's chosen race. And Peter just encourages them, would you allow those spiritual characteristics to define your life more than anything else so that as God's people, the y'all, people go, man, That people, that race of people, they're characterized by something radically different that gives glory to God, that seems to build up one another no matter where they're coming from, and it testifies to the goodness of God. We are a chosen race. He goes on to say, uh, in Christ you are a chosen race and you are a royal priesthood. No, this is, this is heavy stuff. We're a royal priesthood. I, I, I wonder if in Peter's mind the backdrop of what he's thinking about is, is in Acts 15. Now, this isn't going to be on the, on the screen, so if you have your Bibles you want to check this out, you can turn over to Acts 15. 
But there's this scene unfolding where Paul and Barnabas have come back to Jerusalem and, and they're talking about whether Gentiles can come to Jesus or not. And, and so um, they're, they're having this conversation. There's a little bit of a debate going on. And in verse 12 it says, And all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. Okay, so Paul and Barnabas had gone off. They had been ministering among Gentiles and God is still on the move. Like the Holy Spirit is showing up like crazy. And they're like, it it has to be legitimate that Jesus Christ is doing a work through his spirit in these people that we might say, whoa, they're outside of God's plan. And so Paul Paul and Barnabas are making this argument that no, 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 they're included in God's plan. Verse 13, it says, after they finished speaking, James replied, brothers, listen to me. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles. Now, um, uh, I don't know. I think that should be Simon, um, but we could, we could argue that. There's some scholarship on both sides. Um, but he has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take from them a people for his name. So Simon Peter had this vision of, you know, the sheet coming down with all kinds of unclean food. And, and then he was told, hey, Gentiles are brought into my, my kingdom too. And, and so then Peter has this experience with Cornelius being brought into the kingdom of Christ. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it was written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it. The remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from of old. Okay, so this is a prophecy that's found in Amos. We don't often read the book of Amos. But Amos chapter 9, starting in verse 11, these words are proclaimed by Amos that the tent of David is going to be rebuilt and that all mankind, the remnant of mankind, may seek the Lord, even Gentiles who are called by his name. This was a big deal in church history that Gentiles were brought in. And and they're brought in through the very same means that we are. And so I think we have to ask a question. First of all, what is this tent of David? Well, David, uh, he was the king of Israel, and he um, restored worship in the act of bringing the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem. And, And that was a little bit of a bumpy journey, pun intended, because they put the Ark on a cart, and it was coming into town, and it hit a bump, and Uzziah put out his hand to stabilize the Ark, and he was struck dead because nobody was to touch the Ark. David got a little upset by that and parked it at Obed-Edom's house. And and then Obed-Edom, his whole family, began to be blessed in incredible ways. And and David went, "Uh uh-uh, I want that for all the people of God. So we got to get this into Jerusalem. So he brings it into Jerusalem with great joy and dancing, and he builds a tent. Okay, he wanted to build a house, but God said, no, 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 no. I'm fine in a tent. I've dwelt in a tent a long, long time with my people. And then it says that David offers sacrifices, and we get this picture of king and priest in one person. King, the authority over God's people. Priest, the access to God. And we see this in David. And then fast forward, we see it in Jesus. The great king and priest that says, come on, people, because I have the authority and I have the access to redeem you. 
And so Peter goes on in verse 3 of chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Jesus, who suffered and died, rose again victorious, and he was established as king, and he had unfettered access to God the Father. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now, why do I think royal priesthood is a summary statement of what we just read? Because it is only through the authority and access of Jesus Christ that we're brought into this salvation that we can even start the journey of spiritual maturity. But then what we know is that Jesus delegated that authority and he granted us that access. And so he's made us these royal priests with authority and access. Do you eagerly, eagerly, Understand that? Man, you, you, you have authority. You have an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. You, you have this seat of power. You have this place with Jesus Christ. You have, you're seated in the heavenly place. You have this authority that's been delegated to you by Christ to go to live this way, to pursue spiritual maturity, to glorify God, to edify one another, to testify of his goodness. You've been granted the authority as a royal priest, and you have access. I love that the scriptures tell us very plainly, life might get tough. And you know what? It's going to be in those tough times that spiritual maturity is actually most often produced. That's what these verses say. But in the midst of that, it says, hey, don't fear, don't panic, because you have access to God. Do you you eagerly run into the throne room when you find a problem in your life? Do you eagerly run into God's throne room and go, I need grace in this moment, in my moment of need. Are you eager to do that? And do you find a growing consistency in your life that that is what you do? It's a spirit-empowered eagerness and ability to do life with God because we have access and others because we have authority in a way that glorifies God, edifies others, and testifies to the goodness of God. We are royal priests. In Christ, you are a chosen race, You're a royal priesthood, a holy nation. And again, uh, Peter just seems to be kind of peppering this with an idea that Gentiles are brought in because this word nation actually is translated Gentile a lot. And that's good news for us because I don't know about you, but I'm a Gentile. I'm, I'm not a Jew. 
Okay, and so it's good news that I've been brought into this, that in Christ I can say I'm a holy nation, even though that nation was the nation of Israel. It was Jews. Man, Deuteronomy 9 through 12, it just unpacks God's goodness to the nation of Israel. It's the nation of Israel getting ready to go into the promised land. And it's just those three chapters that are just packed with, hey, you know what? I'm going to bring you into this land because I want to demonstrate my goodness to you because you are my people. You're a holy nation. You're set apart with a purpose. You know what? I'm going to bring you into this land. I'm going to give you good laws so that you have an ability to live and act in a pleasing way so that everybody else around you goes, wow, their God must be good. I'm going to do this in a way that, man, my presence is going to be with you. You're going to experience my goodness on a regular basis so that other people are going to go, wow, man, glory to God. Edify one another and look at the testimony. I find it interesting that it it really sets it out in three things that I think we can pick up on in 1 Peter. He says, uh, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about grace, that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person and what time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicated when he... When he predicted the sufferings of Christ and subsequent glories, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you. So the scriptures, these stories that we have of the people of Israel are for our benefit in the things that you have now announced to you through those who have preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. Now picking up verse 13. Therefore... Preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy." We have the instruction of the Old Testament. We have these pictures of the Old Testament, these stories in the Old Testament, these historical accounts of the Old Testament for our benefit so that we can learn what holiness is. And so if you look back at Deuteronomy 9 to 11 and you begin to just read those chapters through the lens of how did God enable his people to live out a life that would bring him glory, that would build them up as a holy nation, and that would testify to the people. And I think you'll see three things. They were set apart in their ambitions. They wanted to be a nation. They wanted to be an important people. They were craving that place in the world that, that everyone would look, look at them and go, Wow, look at that nation. They're amazing. And God goes, You know what? I'll do that, but you have to have ambition for me in order to see that happen. Our ambitions need to be set apart for the things of God. I I don't know what drives your life. I don't know what your ambitions are on a day-to-day basis. But I I just want to ask, are you you eager to submit those to God? Hey, hey God, I'd really like a promotion, but is that what you want? Is that going to serve you best? Hey, God, I'd really like to get ahead in this way, but is that going to serve you best? Are you eager to submit those, to set apart your ambitions for God? We're set apart in our actions. 
So the people of God, they're going into the promised land, and God unfolded his law for them. Here, I'm going to give you good rules that are going to guide your life. Are your actions set apart for the glory of God, for the edification of people, for the testimony of Christ? You're a holy nation, and that has a you component and a y'all component about setting apart our actions to go, okay, God, I want to serve you in everything I do today. I want you to be glorified, whether I'm eating or drinking, whether I'm going to bed or getting up, whether I'm going to work or I'm coming home. I want you to be glorified in everything that I do. And then set apart in our affections. What do you love in this life? And are you eager to lay that down before the Lord? Do you go, Lord, I love this, but I'm so excited to put it at your feet to see what you're going to do with it. And above all, Lord, I I love you. God promised his presence with his people. He said, I'm going to go with you. But keep your eyes on me. What pulls your eyes off the Lord? Are your affections set on the Lord? It's part of growing in spiritual maturity. In Christ you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession. We can maybe sometimes hear this as um, God's a bully or, or I'm just a slave like he took me. We can hear this with a rebellious heart and mind and go, I'm not owned by anybody. I'm my own person. Peter unpacks this in verse 17. He says, And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot, He was foreknown before the foundations of the world, but he made manifest in these last times for your sake, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. To be called the possession of God, we have to realize that there was a time when we were possessed by something else. We were slaves to sin. That's what it means when we say, for all have sinned. That means that you were bought into the sin system, that you were enslaved by sin, and God ransomed you. He paid your debt. He bought you back. Not with silver or gold, but with his blood. Jesus Christ, who was foreknown before the foundations of the world. That's that's a tip of the hat to say he was God. He was made manifest in these last days. He took on flesh so that people could see him. And then he went to the cross and he shed his blood so that he could buy you back. When it says that we're God's very own possession, that's this loud cry, God loves you so much that he would lay down his life for you. So that he could say, you're my child. 
You're part of my kingdom now. And in my kingdom, in my family, there is life and life abundantly. To say we are people of his own possession is to say that we are dearly, dearly loved. Do you eagerly accept that reality in your life? Do you eagerly think of yourself as a a chosen race? Do you eagerly think of yourself as a royal priesthood? Do you eagerly think of yourself as a holy nation? A, A people that's been bought as God's very own special possession. In Christ, that is who you are. That is who y'all are. That's our identity. And it's in understanding that, it's in embracing that, that we actually begin to grow in spiritual maturity. Because we have this spirit-empowered eagerness and ability to do life with God and with others in a way that brings glory and edification and testimony because we're believing this is who we are. So do you believe that? Peter finishes the chapter this way, having purified your souls by the obedience to the truth, For sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Okay, spiritual maturity does have this aspect of obedience. But obedience is believing who God says you are. To live out of our identity is obedience. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory is like the flowers of the grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. I love the complexity of this verse. That he's saying that all of this is ours. We're born again through the word. That's Jesus Christ. And we are brought to maturity Through the Word. So as we read this book this week, here's my encouragement to you, my challenge to you. Would you read it in a way that informs who you are? That informs your identity? Would you read it through the lens of you are a chosen race? You are a royal priesthood. You are a holy nation and a people of God's very own possession. Man, taste and see that God is good. And then eagerly and actively live that way. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for how your word defines us. And Father, I pray that we wouldn't just read your word for information, but Father, that we would read it for our identity. Father, I pray that you'd give us eyes to see by your spirit this week as we come to your word what you're saying. 
to us about who we are. And that, Father, we would just have a fresh or deep understanding and willingness to embrace our identity in Christ in a way that would move us forward in our pursuit of spiritual maturity. Thank you in Christ's name. Amen.